0: Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and your Week in IndyCar Listener Q&A episode powered by you. All of these submissions you fire in on a weekly basis. Been a very busy week, y'all. And for that reason alone, we are recording this. No, it's obviously not Monday night, which is the normal recording slot. It is indeed Wednesday night, getting a start here at 6.29 p.m. in California, IA. Okay, well, we've had a lot of fun things taking place of late. More names are getting added to next week's test at Sebring International Raceway on Monday, the 6th. Now, up to four drivers, along with Nick Navries and Stoffel Van Dorn. We have Callum Eilot and Jack Aitken. I will be there with Ed Carpenter Racing, Jack, Nick, and Stoffel. Indeed, being first timers, so three new drivers, all of them front-line drivers. We can say they've all been highly competitive, championship-winning or contending drivers in F2. One of them being a Formula One driver for a full season, that being Stoffel. We know that Jack did one race last year with Williams, and we know that Nick indeed should be full-time for any serious F1 team. That kid is badass. Plus, we have Callum in the junkos a Racing team getting back out to turn some more laps for him as he prepares for his rookie season next year. So some fun testing stuff coming up. There's not a lot left in the silly season. We Should have some confirmation, uh, I would say, maybe even before next week's. Uh, listener Q and a episode provided it goes off Monday evening as expected, where uh, I think we're going to have final confirmation of the Dale coin racing lineup, everything involved there from co-entrants to drivers. So not as if we haven't spoken about this and y'all don't know, Takuma Sato, David Malukas, et cetera. But anyways, we will, uh, we'll look forward to official confirmation of what is coming there next week. There's some other stuff going on. Can't write about it. Can't talk about it. Can't hint about it. But some, wow, uh, silly season things regarding 2023. (laughs) No joke. Uh, I am overdue to do what will be probably one of the last silly season updates of uh, this calendar year looking towards 2022. But no joke, I think that next edition might actually open up with stuff that could happen for the following year so still debating that uh not trying to tease just sharing with you that as y'all know who've listened for a while i do my best tell you what i can can't necessarily give everything away here before i put it in print for one of my clients but it's the off season we haven't had any car race in a little while things are supposedly quiet but no indeed there's some stuff going on in the backgrounds. So it's like, wow, I can't wait uh, to the point in time where I can, indeed, write about it. I'm going to tell you about a couple of things quickly before we get into your Q&A. put out a, uh, a little update on Monday from my wife and I, just giving uh, folks a little bit of a, a catch-up. Things continue to go well on our cancer fight and... Looking forward to the results here. We mentioned in that update that this is an important week for us where we are going to learn some things about how the change of doctor and healthcare system and uh, chemo drugs, uh, how those things have worked after our first major uh, major regimen. So that's why we're recording here late on a Wednesday. It's been a busy week, but a good week, and can't wait to uh, get those results back to know how we've done how that might change what happens going forward or stay the Again, we don't know, but we're just looking forward to getting our, our quote, report card. Uh, and that will certainly inform what happens for us in the weeks and months ahead in this uh, ongoing fight. One or two other things I want to bring to your attention. We obviously just had Giving Tuesday, where I know many of you were just that giving, kind, and charitable Really proud of one initiative that has kicked off here among the Prue Day, P-R-U-E-D-A-Y, the uh, kind of self-assembled listener group for this podcast. bunch of really fine, fine folks. And they've come together around this podcast of mine, but really they've taken their uh, gathering their bench racing, their support for one another to interesting places. Really, I'd say beautiful levels. I'm not a part of any of it. Um, they have their own ongoing daily group chat. I think uh, Twitter privately and I think Discord maybe as well. If you'd like to join some of that or join that, by the way, uh, just reach out to me on any of my various social media platforms. Uh, landing places, whether it's at Marshall Pruitt on Twitter, uh, Marshall dot Pruitt on Instagram. I don't know. Marshall Pruitt on Facebook uh, or just go to Marshall and use the contact page and uh, reach out and I'll get you connected with the uh, variety of leaders of the Pru day listener group there and they will uh, jump you in and you can then start uh, a making some new friends, but also having fun with them and all the various Uh, racing-related chats and bench racing and and silliness that they take part in. Within that group, uh, again, there are many who are amazing. I want to call out one in particular, and she is truly a ball of awesomeness, and that is Cassie Johnston. And she has, uh, being someone who is in and around the greater Indianapolis area, uh, found a great group, charitable group, um, the Children's Bureau in Indy, where you can adopt a kid for Christmas. And there are a lot of kids who come up with their Christmas wish lists. Obviously, we're talking about kids who do not have the financial security are not from uh, as secure or privileged a background as others. And facing the possibility of having nothing for Christmas. Uh, The Children's Bureau in Indy says, hey, if you want to adopt a kid or a family or multiple kids, it's about $100 per kid, and let's go get them as many of the toys as they put on that wish list. Well, Cassie, because she's amazing, uh, has seen this, reacted to this, and a number of Prude members have joined in, provided donations. Everyone is trying to make this a really positive Christmas for these kids through the uh, Children's Bureau in Indy. So if you'd like me to connect you with Cassie, you don't have to be a member of the Prude, but if you'd like me to connect you with her, uh, send me a note at any of those places I mentioned, uh, or if you want to donate directly through Venmo at CJO54, PayPal, you can do that through Cassie Johnston, C-A-S-S-I-E-J-O-H-N-S-T-O-N-5-4 at Gmail, and through the Cash App platform at dollar sign CJO54. So that's the little first service announcement, public service announcement, uh, Cassie, who, if you're also interested from a, uh, a social media standpoint uh, on Twitter is where I normally come across her fun and awesome observations. Uh, she is at IndyCar underscore Cass, C-A-S-S. So Cassie Johnston at IndyCar underscore Cass. And if you'd just like to do something good, help some kids, help donate some money to make, uh, the holidays happier for, uh, some kids that could really use it. Cassie is leading this march in seriously. There's nothing that makes me more proud than to know among this Prude group they're trying to do something that means a heck of a lot to me that I'm trying to do as often as I can, which is raise money, do whatever it is to help others. Uh, there's not much else you can do in life that I would say is, is much more important. Uh, last note here that we're going to get to your questions. Similar mention in terms of help being needed, and this is one that I just learned about within the last 24 hours. I need to drink something, y'all. I'm speaking faster than my mouth can keep up. A dear friend of the show, a dear friend of many, Roger Warwick. If you have seen any of the Weekend in IndyCar, Weekend in Sports Car show tunes, I often post. Uh, when I'm calling out for questions or whatever it might be, the stickers, right? The various cartoons, those are all drawn by Roger. Uh, All of the t-shirts related to anything I've ever done, most of what Robin Miller had drawn for all of his various t-shirts and you name it, all from Roger's hands. Uh, Also, Roger is very active, uh, with our show partner, torontomotorsports.com. But for many years before that alliance, Roger has been attending IndyCar events, IMSA events, back-of-the-day Grand Am, ALMS, you name it, uh, as a man helping charities himself, doing live drawings, live art uh, at events for whichever charities. And doing that drawing, doing that canvas, beautiful, whatever it might be, open wheel sports cars, whatever, That being auctioned off, he has raised tens and tens of thousands of dollars for charity just because he's an amazing guy. His wife, Whitney, military veteran, she has been struck recently with a medical illness, a a malady, does not allow her to work. And they're trying to work through that, fight through that, get through that. But there's no exact guarantee when that's going to become possible and she has been unable to work long enough, leaving Roger as the sole income generator in the house. Uh, Trying to think of a polite way to say this, but uh, Roger deserves to be paid a fortune for his work. Unfortunately, motorsports art is not a place where one's skills necessarily generates millions. So they're in a place where they might need to sell their house and just about anything else that isn't bolted down to stay current with bills, to keep up with the incoming medical expenses and life expenses and you name it. So just set up uh, a GoFundMe page for Roger. I am going to share that link in the morning. That would be Thursday morning. Um, Would just say that uh, if you see it and you are able, knowing these two folks that we care for and how Roger is certainly someone who is always trying to give freely to support charities through his work. Want to take care of him as best we can. There's no damn way Roger and Whitney should need to sell their house, sell their belongings to keep from going under. So a bit of a heavier start to the show here, but you know what, uh, I try and keep this as light as I can. It's going to get light in just a moment once we get to the Q&A, but you know, for those who do know, you know, things have been pretty heavy on the home front here for a couple of years. So it's not uncommon to be in this place. For myself, I try not to take you all there very often, but we do indeed have both Roger and Whitney's need here, which is real. Uh, so please, if you do see those uh, GoFundMe links that I share, if you're able, please help. And if you want to help some kids through uh, the Prue Day, through Cassie Johnston and some fine members of that group, all the ways that I mentioned there, uh, at IndyCar underscore Cass on Twitter, if you just want to make it really simple. Um, let's do some good things, y'all. All right. A little bit of a uh, music bed here to get rolling with your cue and the A. Uh, where are we going to go first? You know where we're going to go first? And I just get this is my unpolished heart of a show. I, uh, I don't edit out my mistakes. Uh, I had the fine list of questions put together by our man, Jim Kaiser, and then I rebooted the computer and I forgot to open it up. So I don't have it in front of me. So give me just a second. And here we go. All righty. Uh, we're going to start off with our pal, Ryan Terpstra, talking about AJ Foyt Racing, Kyle Kirkwood, Alexander Rossi, a little bit of Silly Season stuff here. Uh, Ryan Turstrow says so the buzz around Rossi in and ready instead of asking you to guess if it'll be Rossi or Kirkwood in the 27 car once 2022 is finished I'm going to ask you to assume it's Kirkwood and in that scenario where is Rossi in 2023 Ryan closes by saying Hashtag, #for me personally penske porsche plus indy 500 is what rossi's going to be doing starting in 23 Uh, Mike Lengel, you also say if Alexander Rossi has a good year, uh, this season at Andretti, will Kyle Kirkwood end up at Penske? Things that I've heard, been hearing for a little while, had the first item denied by both Michael and Alexander, and that was been hearing for a while that Alex could win the championship, win every single race, win another Indy 500, could dominate the entire season. Still not sure he's coming back. As in, contract has one more year left on it, as we sometimes see in other sports. Maybe that relationship has met its natural conclusion, but there's still another year left to go contractually. So we're going to do it. We're going to get through it. We're going to be super professional. We're going to try, and again, win everything, dominate everything, but even if we are 16-0 and 0 at the end of the year, champions, you name it, the fact that it's maybe time for us to move on, none of that changes the natural conclusion having been reached in our relationship. That's what I keep hearing. I can't tell you if that's accurate. I can tell you that when asked of Michael and of Alexander, they both said, nope. So maybe that's hashtag fake news. I know that independent of the answers I've received to that question from the uh, team owner and driver in question, I am pretty darn confident as I've been saying for a little while now and putting in the mailbag at racer. I hope y'all are enjoying that. Please send in questions there too. Um, I'll be really surprised if Kirkwood is not in that 27 car once we get to 2023. Uh, again, I don't know what I'd bet because I'm really bad at that, and I'd never remember what the bets are either because I just don't take that stuff too seriously. But I'll be really surprised if at this time next year, uh, Kirkwood isn't off testing at Sebring in the number 27 in Dreddy Autosport, Napa Tools Honda. If that were to not happen, Alexander were to stay, which I actually would love to see. I would love to see him stay. Have a great year. Stay. And in theory, this Herta Rossi Groshaw thing can be a truly rolling pack of devastation if it reaches its full potential. We know Hurt is already there. That's not a question. We think moved from coin to Andretti that Groshaw will become a more consistent contender from round to round. We saw big peaks from him, big peaks. We also saw some valleys, not too uncommon though, right? Rookie, so lots to learn, but there's the potential here to be the strongest team in IndyCar. If we look at Ganassi, we know that Alex Pelot and Scott Dixon are going to be awesome everywhere they go. They had our man Marcus Erickson join them, right? So Ganassi did have three true contenders everywhere they went, Alex and Scott being the most consistent of the three, right? Marcus wasn't always there, but he was there more often than he had been in the past. I'd call that about two and a half serious drivers in contention everywhere that Ganassi went. Penske, about one and a half and no disrespect to Scotty McLaughlin, rookie, learning everything, get all that our boy power. Will's just been a very streaky guy for quite some time, right? Sometimes he's on pole and winning or near and others. uh, He's not there or gets embroiled in an accident or something silly, but Newgarden was about the most consistent. Uh, So I'd say Penske has had and has one and a half. Uh, drivers truly contending everywhere they go. We hope that Scotty is able to step up and make that kind of two ish uh, across the three drivers being in regular cont- regular contention. Aaron McLaren SP had one in Pato. Ray Hall Lanigan had one in Graham Ray Hall. You come back to this, and yeah, I know they're a four car team, Devlin D. De Francesco, rookie, lots to learn, no expectations. Just saying. If Rossi can become the Rossi we've seen and known, Michael has the potential to have the most effective, devastating, threatening driver lineup in the series. By the numbers, there should be three Andretti drivers, Andretti cars, fighting for the podium, if not wins, everywhere they go. I know Groshaw has oval racing to learn, but I don't think that's going to be much of a concern. I really do see this as having great potential. So what if by chance Rossi has another off year? Well, makes it really easy, uh, to say, Hey man, thanks. Love you. Uh, best of luck wherever you go. Uh, Kirkwood, come on down. You're the next contestant in the number 27 Honda. And then Michael has that rolling three-driver thing of destruction in 2023. But I'd be truly surprised if Rossi was not able to become part of that trio next season. I just don't expect him to be back afterwards. So there's real potential here. So you talk about where would Rossi go? Obviously, Penske could be a consideration. Would he expand to four cars to get Rossi? Would, I mean, New Gardens going nowhere, but would a Power or McLaughlin be at risk if Roger just wanted to stay at three? I don't know the contracts and whether they can be cut or can't, or is there an option to take up at the end of 2022? And if he doesn't, then Roger doesn't, then truly he can put whomever in whatever car. Again, I don't know all the details there, Ryan. But I can say that more than where might Rossi end up in 2023, my mindset is what does he do to raise his stock? This is what I'm going to write about in the next Silly Season update. Uh, Or maybe another piece about drivers who need to raise their stock to continue at the level they're at in the sport. If Rossi goes and does big things next year, runs in the top five in the championship, wins a race or two, and just again is back to his old form, I would expect a Roger Penske, a Chip Ganassi, a Zach Brown, a Bobby Rahal to all be in a bidding war for his services. If he has a seventh, eighth place in the championship, wins a race, but isn't really in the fight, I think there might be some other options out there some known some unknown that would have those high profile team owners looking to those options first this is really an upcoming year where alexander needs to show folks he's the same old guy who was kicking ass for many years that's where he has these options as you mentioned a penske thing a whom wherever thing In that absence, that's where some of the second-tier teams, midfield teams, become the places that are interested. They get better by Alexander Cumming because he would be among the best, if not the best driver they've had in a really long time. So that's where my mind goes here, first and foremost, y'all. I do expect there to be a, a change in the twenty-seven car at the end of the year. Real question is what level of contract, what level of team is trying to secure Alexander's services? Does something magical happen during the year where Rick Hendrick gets involved and brings Michael and Alexander together to do the same milk and cookies routine he did a long time ago to get chad kanaus jimmy johnson and everyone back on the same page again i don't know does this all somehow get resolved in rossi signs new multi-year extension 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 to stay with and i don't know that feels like a long shot feels like that ship might have sailed but we've yet to run the next season who knows what could develop Uh, daniel Summersgill, mp mentioned the last couple of weeks you expect Kirkwood to be one year at Foyt before returning to Andretti. Will he get any technical support from Andretti in 2022? Or does having a different engine, a Chevy rather than Honda, limit the support that can be given? Uh, yes, that does absolutely limit. Um, moreover, how Kirkwood drives for AJ Foyt, Larry Foyt, you name it, uh, There's no technical alliance that I know of, nor is there anything I can think of. I mean, Dampers could, you know, I'm sure be tuned to be really darn good to go with him, but would Michael want to make Kyle Kirkwood a problem for his own team? The answer would be no. Uh, Would Michael give anything? to Foyt or any other competitor no not a chance is the andretti team outside of herta in a position of really needing to step up its performance overall yes these are all things where if you're a big badass raging team kicking butt taking names have been for a while it's rock solid year to year Almost no wavering, no changes. You're just kicking butt from year to year. Maybe then, Daniel, you'd think of, well, could we throw him a bone and help this kid out a little bit? And you know, we, we want him back. We plan on getting him back. But hey, let's see if we could do a little something. Maybe if you're coming from a place of unquestioned strength. And auto Autosport is not coming from that unquestioned place of strength. Colton's been the the leading performer and deliverer of quality results for the last two years as a whole. Uh, They certainly need to get the aforementioned drivers that will be with them next season and beyond into that same game as well. So I'd say knowing that Andretti has still a number of things they need to clean up in their own house, the thought of doing anything benevolent uh, for Kirkwood with Foyt, I would... Say would be a remote possibility at best. The fact that they use a a different engine as well. Uh, I know that you know if we're looking back to twenty eighteen end of the season, uh, Harding Steinbrenner Racing, Colton and Pato making their Indy cars de- Indy car debuts at Sonoma with the Chevy powered Harding Steinbrenner team. And in Dreyer Autosports, supplying dampers and helping with some engineering talent there, I know that that has happened in the past. But keep in mind um, that was through a uh, a growing business relationship uh, between Michael and uh, Mike Harding and whatnot. And Steinbrenner obviously came their way. So a um, little bit different here. This is not a uh, that I'm aware of any kind of business deal that would lead Michael to send anything Foyt's way. Uh, Andy Bauer, you say, much has been made about AJ Foyt Racing and its issues over the past several years. You ask, is Supertech still involved in the day-to-day decisions uh, or even higher-level ones like driver selection, or is this Larry Foyt show completely? You ask, what needs to happen at Foyt for them to climb out of the basement? Continued prayers for you and your bride uh, Andy says, I'm glad she renewed your lease for another year. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, let's see. Yes, AJ is certainly involved. Uh, major decisions without a doubt involve AJ. Uh, I don't foresee that ever changing. What needs to change for them to become competitive? couple things here. I could probably do the rest of the show on this, Andy, but I won't. Um, I love the foits. I really do. Uh, Larry in particular is one of the sweetest, kindest, most thoughtful folks you'll ever meet. I mean, uh, truly. Just phenomenal in that regard. I wish more of AJ's cutthroat Tendencies more from his driving days when he was really active in the ownership days. I wish there was more of that within Larry on the business side, Um, not on the human side, but on the business side. Because I think if Larry had more of that, the only thing I care about is the instant and constant success of our team and I am going to take the heart out of it and the human element. I'm just truly, uh, absolute business, nothing personal, all business. I think that would have the team in a very different place. Um, Larry is hesitant to make change and even more hesitant to make big changes. Um, I can only share these observations from the outside. I would just say that on numerous occasions over the last I don't know ten years, it has occurred to me that, oh man, they need to make a driver change here. They need to make an engineering change there. There might need to be a crew chief change there there's right, Those things are never easy. But if you're going to keep up with the level of competitiveness or leap forward from wherever you happen to be on the grid, you're going to have to do those hard things. Um, It would often be three, four, five years later that I would see that change happen. (sighs) flip that over to a Andretti Autosport, Chip Ganassi Racing, etc. If, let's say, Tim Sindrick, Penske Racing Team president, Andy, sees that there is something not working between a driver and engineer, do you think Tim Sindrick would allow that relationship to continue the following season? Or would he be working, game planning, feeling, putting out feelers uh, halfway through the season, before the halfway point, to find a replacement, someone to step in and get this driver-engineer relationship back on track, get this car back to victory lane, get back to being competitive and kicking a lot of behind? No question. Um, There's a cold-bloodedness about this. I've been on the receiving end of that. I remember being replaced uh, by a IRL team that I worked for, one that I helped kind of put together even. Really hurt. Uh, there were some extending, extended issues there between uh, the team co-owner and I, and you know he and I just were not getting along. Um, but I got changed out, and it was like, whoa, totally took me by surprise. And I don't think the job that I was doing was poor or reduced in quality or whatever. Nonetheless, the person in an ownership position, the, the most powerful position, saw something he didn't like, thought that the team would be better in whatever it was. By not having me there, And by bringing in someone else, happened to be a good friend of mine, by the way. That stung even more. But again, uh, Juan Montoya, hashtag it is what it is. I've been on the receiving end of that where you go, man, this sucks. Uh, I was not prepared financially for that change. Uh, I was, uh, again, blindsided. And all the things where you go, yes, this is the negative side of change. I can't argue in hindsight that it was the right move, right? I'm not saying the team got drastically better. They didn't. But whatever it was, there was just the thing that the team owner needed to have better chemistry, better this, better whatever. It happened. And we went on. Life moved on. I went to work for another team the following year, blah, blah, blah. That level of hey, even if I love you, know you, we live next to each other, I'm your, we're godparents to each other's kids, and we house sit for each other. Even if it's to that level, if you're trying to win in a brutally competitive place like IndyCar, none of those things can matter. And so when you see Dale Coyne, uh, while Sebastian Bourdais has a fully valid contract for the following year, saying. I'm not going to honor that contract. Uh, I believe we need to make a change and uh, you can fight me and we can burn tons of money uh, with lawyers and I'm going to win that because I'm far wealthier than you or you can just accept this change and take whatever reduced uh, sum uh, for next year and we're going to part ways, whether it is, Uh, What we know now is Aaron McLaren SP doing kind of similar thing with Hinch. Um, Hey, we're going forward with the contract and everything's going to be great. And boom, no, you're out. Uh, Goodbye. Like we hate those things, but those are also changes that get made in the interest of the team's improvement above all else. Just want to share a couple of those little things with you, Andy, because that level of, Team first at all points in time. I wish Larry had more of that because if he did, the AJ Foyt racing team would be farther up the grid. There would be more star profile race engineers and whomever else is wanting to go there and work there. It's a significant thing. And At times, I wonder, is Larry too nice to be the cold-blooded guy that is required to bring A.J. Foyt Racing back to a place of prominence in IndyCar? It can happen. That's the thing here, to close Andy. It can happen. Just, it's going to take Larry pushing into his comfort zone, or Larry and AJ saying, okay, um, we're going to add another person to the man, you know, high-level, top-tier management uh, group, and that's our, quote, executioner. <laughs> that's the one who says, sorry, you got to go. Uh, love you, but you got to go because we need to get better in this area and that area and you name it. That happens with every team, every other team, more or less, in IndyCar every year, Andy. I shouldn't say every. All the ones that are fighting for championships on a year-to-year basis are doing the same exact thing. So this is not really a critical thing about Larry and the Foyt team. It's not like, boy, if they were to just do this, then there'd be a drastic change in their end. This kind of cutthroat approach is absolutely performed every year at the routine title contenders because they realize we need to constantly evolve. We need better people right every team at the front is getting better so we need to get better and how do you do that well it's people uh whether one of our existing employees has learned grown become more added new skills or there's someone we can hire that's fresh out of university or maybe at another team that knows more can bring in something new whatever it is just like teams are always spending money to try and improve their cars research and development topics, projects, whatever, for the cars to try find little fractions of time to help win, the same exact process, mindset, is applied to the staffing. I would say if and when the Foyt team gets to that level of committedness to we're going to be the best no matter what, and sorry if folks' feelings get hurt, uh, then we're talking about the possibility of changing fortunes for them. Last little thing here, too, is the fact that they are at two different locations between Indianapolis and Texas. It continues to be a limitation, right? You can find plenty of folks in Indy or are willing to be in Indy. Folks who are willing to pack up and go to Texas to run and work on and you name it, one of the cars, half of the team, uh, that, that's something that also needs to come to an end quickly. I know the team is as proudly Texan as anyone could be. If you want to become IndyCar race winners and title contenders, uh, you're probably not going to do it while having half your team in one spot, the other half in the other. And an ongoing issue in finding folks wanting to move out of Indianapolis or Indiana to go be in Texas. So there you go, Andy. Uh, Let's go to our pal Darren King. Why do I say he's our pal? Because he's been a long-time listener, but a first-time question submitter at Darren Tire King on Twitter. Darren says, hey, Marshall, long time, first time. Every year at Indy, it seems that one manufacturer has horsepower. The other has fuel mileage. For obvious reasons, teams want to keep this a secret until the last minute. At what point is it obvious who is who? Also mentions love the show. Thanks, Darren, man. Love having folks who, uh, whether you're new listener or longtime listener, whatever it is, send in a question. Might not always get picked up, but we do our best, especially when you say, "Hey, I'm a first timer." To uh, to greet you and introduce you to everybody, and uh, if you want to join that wacky prude eh, gang, let me know well uh it's not always split this way darren uh there have been years where there have been horsepower kings and mileage kings being separate there's also been times where the nastiest combination of being able to make the most power but also do it in uh, a miserly fuel capacity has been the case i would say in recent years on the secret End, right? Who's got what? When are we gonna find out? The last two years, maybe three. Feels like there hasn't been as much of a true thing kept under wraps. When is it gonna be revealed? Uh, were we? They're gonna find out pretty quickly. Running in the draft, leading up to qualifying as to where their mileage numbers are. They're also going to learn doing some of the lead and follow teams tend to do that. They'll send out two, three, four, however many cars they have to try and do some of that on their own and have someone running at the point, however many laps, then they'll trade positions. They're obviously working on setup in the draft, uh, in dirty air, trying to make the cars as good as it can be. Mechanically, aero uh, arrow wise too, but that's the, the easier thing to, uh, to tune. Um, but also getting a gauge for, hey, you just went and spent X amount of laps out front. Uh, I w- well, breaking the wind. <laughs> uh, piercing the air. And that's certainly going to burn more, more fuel than those who are uh, sitting behind you. But they'll get those feels pretty darn quickly. Used to be a thing where there was more of a, hey, your Indy 500 race motors are coming. And there's going to be, you know, pretty much this significant, whatever it might be, upgrades coming from Chevy and Honda. Um, I guess, yeah, we'll just say Chevy and Honda, since that's all we've had for a long time. Uh, Hey, they've been working on latest iterations, latest versions of their motors. um, Since teams can indeed bolt in Indy 500 motors uh, specific for the event. Um, Look for what's coming there and so there have been some modest bumps in in power um modest performance changes you know fuel conservation certainly is always part of what they're trying to do but i would just say darren it feels like it's been a couple years since there was that oh i can't wait for those those indy 500 fresh off the uh, the dyno motors to be uh unboxed and bolted in and then we're going to get to see the real power in the real everything seems like going into qualifying we've gotten a pretty darn good feel for what's what um fast friday again i know that uh with the turbo boost turned up we still get a, too many folks running in a pack that give us a bit of a, a false read on, on true single lap speed but for the most part we're gonna know by saturday uh, by that first day of official qualifying who's got what and with the no toe reports that we uh, we observed during practice leading up to qualifying we certainly get a feel for who's capable of doing what what uh without an arrow toe. gives you a bit of an indicator of horsepower who's got what but i don't know if the real unveiling is what it's was in the past main reason at 10 plus years now with this engine formula there's just not a lot left to gain are there gains of course are they the significant kinds where you go whoa <laughs> in practice with the the quote old motors the ones that they've been using carrying into the event you know this brand was at the front and this other one was just really stinking and New motors got bolted, and boom, that flip-flopped. I think just the the age of the motors and the amount of development that's been done, so few things left to find that are going to make significant changes to performance at the Indy 500 more granular. So, again, I think in the last couple of years, Darren, it's just been yeah what you're kind of seeing by the end of that uh, first week of practice leading into qualifying. Uh, that's pretty much it. And unless there's something crazy that I can't imagine would happen on the finding fuel economy front. Yeah. uh, I think the one with the most power is going to end up winning. There was some sort of thing that was going on this past May. I was listening to in the broadcast over and over again about how Honda's got the power, but Chevy's got the mileage and it's like, Yeah, if you you look at who's pitting when and where and who can stretch and yada, yada, yada. Yeah, I never saw that. I don't know where that came from, but I I didn't see it. Other thing here that's kind of cool, if you do have that power advantage, Darren, you can use it when needed, but the ability to throttle back a little bit and not have to use it at all times, it's a wonderful little advantage. We're not talking about this last year with honda having a 50 horsepower advantage it might be five might be three i don't know again whatever it might be but just that little advantage is something that you can use as needed uh, but also you don't necessarily have to dip into that every lap which would then in theory burn a little bit more fuel so yeah fun stuff here but until we go to these new 2.4 liter twin turbo v6 hybrid motors uh, I don't think we're going to see any real surprises coming uh, this next year at the Indy 500. Uh, Ed Joris said Building off your fun answer about the Andretti and Michael Shank Meyershank racing relationship, what happens to that historical technical data if and when Meyershank racing goes its own way? How much does Meyershank racing know about Andretti's dampers? Will MSR ever know enough about Andretti's damper program to be successful going it alone? would say that whatever they've done during the time they've been together would certainly be within MSR's information uh, collection. As for dampers, while they might not know what all is happening inside, I would say that there's enough talented people in the paddock to be able to mimic what they have seen through the data or from a feel standpoint, uh, build things that are pretty darn good based on the feedback from their drivers. So I don't know if MSR will ever know everything about Andretti's damper program, but with talented Shank and Meyer-employed engineers and someone like a Simo Pagino helping them... Again, if they were to operate without the Andretti Technical Alliance, uh, I have no doubt that they would be able to come up with something pretty darn good, if not just as good. So there you go. Uh, Austin Sutton, saying with the uh, MSR topic, says, Do either or both Elio Castroneves and Simon Pagino have a realistic chance to fight for the title, or at least a top five next year? Uh, What are your predictions for where they finish next season in the standings? Oh, don't ask me for predictions, Austin. They're always wrong. Um, why don't I just say 1-2 in the championship, and so then you can absolutely mock me here. I don't know if we're going to see Elio in a position of championship strength once we get towards the end of 2022, my friend. I think he's going to have some very good races, but I also think there's going to be as i mentioned uh, previously about peaks and valleys i think there's going to be some valleys Uh, it's not like he has become any less talented the amount of heat being brought by indycar's younger drivers uh, is brutal and the sheer intensity that has been ramped up lap by lap by lap that is the thing that Some of IndyCar's older stars, champions, Indy 500 winners, etc., are finding hard to match. So it's not that at 46, 47, Elio's arms and legs and fingers can't move quickly, or his brain can't send signals at a zillionth per second, and all that stuff, but it's that how mentally intense of living at a hundred percent or over every lap are you willing to do and able to do and honestly that's the thing that aging athletes talk about Man, when i was 27 i could get so amped up so on edge and screaming and yelling and hyped and i'm it's pure intensity pure attack football basketball racing whatever from start to finish that thing where you hey i've been doing this 15 years i've been doing this 20 i've been doing this 25 whatever that's where it starts to get hard time starts to weigh in that that mental intensity that's the thing that becomes hard to maintain take this out of racing for a moment and move it to music think about a band that you grew up with and loved that are still around and still somewhat popular whatever they might be whatever form of music I shouldn't say whatever form if we're talking rock if we're talking hip hop talking a few other forms of music but think about a band think about a think about an artist who you grew up with not too far from your age right if you were 18 when you learned about the band and fell in love with them, maybe he or she was 20 or similar age, their work, those albums, probably be pretty intense. Lots of energy, because that's who they were, young and rawr, whatever. Get two, three, four, five, seven albums down the road. That same artist at 35, 40, probably not putting out the rawr, albums this, I don't know if this is a good example but I cite it every now and then and that's uh, the Irish band U2 I think I heard them for the first time in like 1981 80, 81, 82, somewhere in there and loved them wow uh, matched my youthful energy and and you know by the early to mid 90s uh I mean, they got older, they aged, and guess what? That same ragey intensity, no longer there. Music mellowed just a little bit. There's still maybe a hit here and there, still something with a little bit of life in it, but for the most part, you play that music from their youth when they were whatever in 1980, and you play that album from them in 2005. It's that age thing. You get older that wanting to destroy everything in front of you and and eat the world and all that. It's rarely the same. Just saying here, it's absolutely directly comparable to what we have in motor racing. Uh, you listen to a Mario Andretti who retired at 54 years old from full-time racing said, you know, it's just, I still have the burning hunger and desire, but, Man, after 40 years or whatever of doing this full-time, I don't know if I want to keep getting my blood pressure up to that dangerous level uh, like I did in my youth, and that's what's needed to compete. So a little bit of a longer longer story there, but that's why I still expect to see some big things from Elio like we did at Long Beach, right? It's always great there. He's going to be great at Indy going to be a number of places where i think you feel elio i think there's also going to be some places where you're going to see that it's going to be tough for him to keep up with the pups simon interesting position someone who's had more down years than up years at penske before that had pretty much nothing but up years with uh, schmidt hamilton and schmidt peterson motorsports what we now know is Arrow McLaren SP. He's what thirty-five-ish, thirty-six. Not too old by any means, but also at a place where he needs to show that he's still got it, got it at a front-running level. So, with all that said, Austin, I don't know where Elio is going to finish in the championship. I, I truly don't. I would say, I don't know, 10th, 12th, something in there, maybe. Seems like that'd be about right. Simon, he's going to be their title contender if he and they are ready to contend for titles. We know Simon is capable because we've seen it. He's a champion and an Indy 500 winner. It's there. Will it get unlocked? Will his hunger be at a higher place? Will his intensity be where it needs to be? Will he do the thing that's always been his challenge, and that is get out of his head, be less of a thinker, be less articulate and intentional with every single move behind the wheel, and tap into that animal side, that when he does that, that's when game over. Uh, He's checked out, everyone else is fighting over second place. Haven't seen that guy in a little while. Can he come back? Too many questions, Austin, on that front with Simon to be able to say I expect him to finish here in the championship. I don't expect either driver to be vying for the title. Too tough. The teams they have to beat, the drivers they have to beat, too far ahead right now. Keeping in mind, Meyers Shank Racing just recently went full-time in IndyCar. They're just going to the two-car program for the first time next year, full-time with both, right? So, again, they're still young and learning and all those things, but they have the potential to win, say, two to three races at least. Uh, Elio at the 500 seems like if he's not one of your top three picks, I'd be a surprise. Uh, Simon, I think, can pick up a win or two for sure. Could be Oval, could be Road or Street Course, could be anywhere. Just too many questions there. we got to see where he's at and what he's able to deliver. Um, If he can get to where he should be, I would say anywhere from 6th to 10th in the championship. Seems like it would be realistic to hope, but only after we get some of those answers. Uh, let's see where we're going to go next going to try and mash the throttle just a little bit here i think we're going to go to riley stricker how you doing riley He says hey mp i know a new engine formula is coming in 2023 also heard about a new chassis but then also that the dw12 is staying all of that is true um and you got more questions here so i'll get that in just a second yes so indycar Uh, set the rules for this new 2.4 liter motor and those rules say it must bolt into the existing chassis so the connecting points to the dw12 tub must be identical so that's been the plan for indycar to carry over the dw12 for its uh for the new 2023 hybrid engine's very first season i'm not totally sure if that's going to be a thing in 2024 or not in terms of will a new chassis be coming then could it be 2025 i don't know let me express a a quick concern here riley before we get on to the next uh your next questions indycar has a constantly evolving five-year plan many things happen Many things come to mind, get developed, come to fruition. Some things don't. Then there's kind of another part of the five-year plan, and that is the intent. That's the fuzzy side. Hey, we know we need, we need a new chassis. Um, are we willing to say, hey, 2020X, whatever the year is, it is happening. That's the part that I find routinely frustrating with IndyCar because I ask about this stuff all the time, my man. Could you give me something other than a generalism, a generic answer? We know whatever the thing is is needed. You know it's needed. You've said it's needed. You said it's going to happen. Could you give me more than a two- or three-year window? Like, stick A stake in the ground and say okay we're planning towards it this new engine that's coming it was supposed to be here a little while ago and then it wasn't and then there were changes and hey now it's going to be hybrid and cool and hey it's going to get pushed back again again cool got it great understand covid certainly didn't help uh timing and manufacturing and there's all kinds of things everybody agrees a new chassis is needed plant that that stake in the ground and say this is when it's coming uh we're not there yet so yes <laughs> it's frustrating uh so is there a new engine and car you ask new engine coming bolt into the old one and i'm going to be writing about that somewhat in depth here as soon as i make the time to turn a I don't know how many interviews I've done three, four, five. I have one more I need to get done before I want to put all that into a story. But yeah, um, lots of news coming here. Uh, you then say, "Are we getting both upgrades at different times?" Could you help get me up to speed? I got lost in the sauce. So part of this, and the reason why I wanted to read the rest of your questions, even though it, I, it sounds like I may have answered them already. Part of the non-committal timeline thing is this concept which i don't know if it's gonna stick or is even feasible and that is one of introducing new chassis items in a multi-year introduction phase i don't even know how to say it because i still can't really make fully full sense out of it riley so we know the new engine capacity and the size and what it's going to be we have a general idea of what the energy recovery system is going to be. We have not had IndyCar name the vendor or vendors for it. They haven't named the type, right? There's all kinds of of different ERS systems currently in use in motorsports or potentially being developed for use in motorsports. Um We don't know how it's going to be charged and deployed. We don't know how that would play out road, street courses, and ovals. There's lots that we don't know. And by we, I mean those outside of IndyCar's inner circle and those at the the top of Chevy and Honda who uh, know about these things. But in terms of the public, even the teams do not know. The ERS solution and how everything's going to work and be and whatnot. Uh, they've been briefed on a number of things, but again, the the big part of the puzzle um, or the biggest pieces of the puzzle continue to be held from them. Got it. Part of this rally to close also comes back to something IndyCar has said, which instead of following what has happened forever in IndyCar, which is going to have a new chassis next year and it's new <laughs> like you pay money you get a whole new car a a rolling chassis as it's called minus engine sometimes minus transmission but basically you're going to get the all of it except for the motor part you do your deal with whomever your motor vendor is going to be um you build that car you drop that motor in you now have a functioning indy car. Go play. Um, for what IndyCar has described, without any real specifics about what it would be, how it would be, uh, we've been told, I've written about it multiple times, of this multi year, multi component introduction. So maybe in year one of the new chassis, whatever year that would be, you'd get a new tub, a DW24, or 25. And then maybe the next year you get some new bodywork, and maybe the next year you get a new this, and next year you get a new that, all in the, under the the guise of trying to save teams money, so they don't have to come out of pocket all at once for uh, three, four, ten, whatever DW 24, 25s. I don't understand, Riley, how that would work, because. All that I know about this hybrid engine package says that it is so different from what we currently have in the DW-12. Not just the componentry. The the actual internal combustion engine is not going to be radically different, but the ERS system is going to be the big game changer in terms of weight and where you're having to position things and changes coming to the car to support the ERS system and performance standpoint, and, and chassis balance, and braking, and blah, 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 aero, and blah, blah, blah. The change is big enough to where I don't grasp how you could do a, going to get you a new thing this year, then another new part, significant area of the car the following year, and then more the fo- like, I don't see how you spread this introduction over three to five years. The only thing I can see is, You pay your lump sum, get a full complete car, drop your motor in, go play race car. So, I, like you, my brother, I'm a little bit lost in the sauce. I'm hoping to gain more clarity. (laughs) I'm always hoping to gain more clarity among the fuzzy non-committal timeline. Uh, But, what are we to do? uh, Ethan Patrick says, what is stopping IndyCar? IndyCar. I need to drink something because my mouth is really not working as intended what's stopping any car from going to a four-cylinder hybrid formula which is a thousand percent more road relevant than a v6 honda uh, was on board for a four-cylinder turbo heading into the new 2012 formula so i wonder why we can't get there i guess there's the obvious i don't mean to be a total smart ass here ethan but the thing stopping any car from doing it is both manufacturers said we don't want to do that uh we want it to be a twin turbo v6 that was going into 2012 as well i know that honda was at some point maybe open to the four but uh, the six is really what made most sense for them uh, if we're thinking about the amount of v6 and turbo V6. Uh, higher-end vehicles that they have or had to sell, um, yeah, that would uh, certainly fit. Uh, Would say here, a couple things that really do apply to this new 2023 formula that make the TT V6, twin-turbo V6, compared to a single-turbo four-cylinder. Granted, I guess they could try and do two turbos, but that has not been a common Solution throughout the history of motor racing. Not saying twin turbo four cylinders never been done, just saying it's really a bit of a unicorn in terms of commonality. Had this explained to me by multiple engine gurus over the years, one of them being Roger Griffiths from uh, HPD, who uh, left, HP, who was their technical director, left years ago, has been in Dredy Autosports Formula E uh, racing boss. Uh, Had this explained to me by Ulrich Beretsky, uh, Audi's longtime engine guru with their LMP1 or just Le Mans prototype programs, um, asked Ulrich about this years ago when the global racing engine, which I think is kind of what you're talking about, this GRE concept of a very powerful four-cylinder turbo solution that could be used across all forms of racing by manufacturers, uh, why that wasn't a great fit for Audi. He said, Roger said, and it still applies here, for the amount of power we need to make, it's a heck of a lot easier to spread that load, spread that power production expectation across six cylinders or eight or more, but in this case from a packaging, six cylinders work. It's a lot easier for us to ask Six cylinders to divide uh, the workload to make that horsepower number than to divide that same horsepower number, uh, divide four into that. So if we're talking a 600 horsepower uh, request for whatever formula, uh, you're asking those six cylinders to make 100 horsepower a piece. So from a reliability standpoint, even from a scaling up standpoint, more strength and durability there. Uh, Asking that four-cylinder motor to do that, I know it might not seem like a giant increase uh, to 125 horsepower per cylinder, but speaking to those who develop these motors, uh, that's that's the thing to think about. So I mentioned 600 horsepower. Well, think about where IndyCar is trying to go with this new formula, where... A base, a starting point in 2023 is 800 horsepower from the internal combustion engine. Goal is to get that to about 900 horsepower after four to five years. The ERS system is meant to contribute about 100 horsepower right away. Could that be scaled up to provide even more over the three, four, five year um, engine formula plan they have? Absolutely. To get beyond 1,000 combined horsepower, yes. But IndyCar's goal is to be at about 900 horsepower in 2023. 800 from the ICE, 100 from the ERS. Asking that four-cylinder motor to churn out 200 horses per cylinder, that, while possible... Is a far more expensive proposition than asking that V6 to split the 800 horsepower load. Um, That's why. Really simple, Ethan. Uh, Big numbers is what they're aiming for. Fewer cylinders, smaller motor, basically, asking that to do that. Super possible. Used to happen back in the day in Formula One. Outrageous numbers. Those motors were pretty much junked after every session, certainly after every race. Cost a fortune. Loved it, truly. I loved it. I, I was able to enjoy that era while it happened. W- wish we could throw money away to make that happen again. IndyCar's formula and the costs involved, absolutely untenable for Chevy and Honda to do that because to make four-cylinder motors, four-cylinder turbos, that make that power reliably the uh the what four engines included in the lease lasting a total of 10,000 miles yeah it <laughs> not only would it cost crazy amounts to make those motors achieve the power and reliability required by IndyCar but the price being passed on to the teams for engine leases I don't know Is it double? Is it triple? It's a crazy, crazy uh, change in financial necessities here, Ethan. So if IndyCar were saying we're going to go to a slightly lower ICE power number and we're going to rely on ERS to be a bigger number, is it 600 and 300? I think you might come back to a place where it'd be a little bit easier to sell a four-cylinder turbo hybrid formula. Uh, Is it 500 and 400 split? 500 and 500? You know, I think that's where the conversation might open up. And who knows, it may. Um, Maybe the next IndyCar engine formula in whatever year it ends up being is a four-cylinder turbo hybrid. Just saying for right now, not the right fit with the uh, comparably minimal... Contribution of the ers system to the uh, overall power number okay we're gonna go to our pal sean uh doherty here says marshall any movement on a third engine manufacturer uh also how is it that rumors about mclaren and money keep floating around yet they just purchased an indycar team how do those two things work together well sean i am a guy who looks for the opposite of complexities in things like this so hey if there's rumors about mclaren hurting for money and yet they just bought a majority stake in an indycar team well those things don't go together so if a team is hurting for money they would not be buying things so if they just bought things significant things I would have to suggest that my looking for the opposite of complexities would tell me maybe that rumor is inaccurate. Am I saying they have no financial issues and no sectors, knowing that they're in many forms of racing, automotive production, all kinds of things? I'm not saying that they're 100% whole and everything's perfect. I don't know of any team that could probably claim that completely, but there's no way they would offer to buy 75% of Air McLaren SP and then go through with it if indeed they were sitting on financial hardships uh, back home at McLaren Racing in the UK. So I don't think those two things work together. Uh, Buying a team or the majority stake in a team would not happen if they were hurting financially. So I think we kind of maybe answered that one um hearing conflicting things sean on a third engine manufacturer hearing both not great things hearing some great things that's the conflicting that's what makes it conflicting i guess to overstate the obvious I know that uh, in the hour-long interview that we did yesterday with Zach Brown, the the racer.com, epartrade.com, race industry week 2021 video series, uh, asked Zach about, hey, there is that strong rumor about a third manufacturer. I've already written the story. I think I wrote the first story uh, about Toyota uh, looking in. They all denied it, of course. You would expect that. Uh, But Toyota taking a serious look at things. Zach in his response to my, hey, uh, when you have a new manufacturer coming into any form of racing looking for partner teams, that becomes something that is a bit of an interesting process because that manufacturer is always looking for an anchor team, call it factory-ish type team, plus one or two others that are going to deliver for them. Um, How does a team handle that? Obviously, Air McLaren SP is aligned with Chevy, so he gave a, an interesting answer uh, and also mentioned. I didn't mention Toyota. I said a third-engine manufacturer. He mentioned Toyota. Um, some thought he was breaking news there. He wasn't, but regardless. Um, I've heard conflicting things. Um, I hope the, the negative side of things that I've heard uh, are wholly inaccurate. Duh. Uh, really, truly hope that indeed a Toyota program in 2024, which is I think what I wrote about and what I've heard, is that's the only timeline uh, for the earliest introduction of something, would be possible. I don't know if that might even be pushed to 2025 if it were to happen, but I am told that there's more than just Toyota in talks. I'm unaware, doesn't mean this is, I know everything, I could be totally wrong, but I am unaware of there being another manufacturer at a more advanced stage or more interested stage than Toyota. So to close on this, Sean, what I'm wondering about is, are we going to learn here in a short amount of time? that there was one manufacturer that expressed interest, there were talks held, and it ultimately did not go anywhere, which has been the story for years and years and years. It's Audi, it's Lamborghini, it's Porsche, it's this, it's that, it's Kia, it's Hyundai, it's, 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 it's. Name all the different brands that pop up. And we write the stories. I write the stories. I'm always, you know, if I hear about it and I know that it's credible, I'm going to tell you about it, even if it doesn't go anywhere. I don't control where it goes, but I at least want to let you know, This is what's happening. We've written a lot of those stories of, hey, this manufacturer is talking or looking in, might really be interested. And then we don't have anything to follow that says they're in. Ferrari, I think, was the latest one. Is this going to be another one of those things? There's one that is seriously looking, but it goes nowhere. Could we get to a place where there's multiple looking in that are at that same advanced level of serious consideration? And hopefully, if you just look at the odds, you go, well, if you got three, I don't know if I expect all three, even two, but out of those three, one should be able to uh, come through. That's the thing uh, I'm curious to learn about, Sean, and hope that will happen. Because if we just keep having these kind of single instances, the odds are never good, right? It's all on that manufacturer to become the, the third, the, the Bigfoot we've been searching for seemingly can never find like hey we think we got a beat on okay no they're not going to do it so that's my hope uh if it isn't toyota i hope that this isn't yet again uh the, the the great single manufacturer hope that um that falls through if it were to fall through so hoping obviously that uh we're talking about three manufacturers here in the very very short future uh jj gertler this is Marshall, in commenting on the passing of Sir Frank Williams, Chip Ganassi mentioned in a tweet that the two teams had collaborated in development of Juan Pablo Montoya and Alex Zanardi. From the outside, it just looked like they switched teams. Do you have any insight into the relationship between Ganassi and Williams? I, I don't know if the uh, the Zanardi development side is so much a thing, knowing that he came here in 19. 19- ninety six, which is awesome. But he'd already been in Formula One. Um he'd driven for what? Uh Jordan is it Minardi as well? Lotus, I think. The Minardi, I'm forgetting the exact timeline on. I might even be wrong there. But he'd already been a Formula One guy. So I wouldn't say there was anything to develop. If anything, he was a big talent that had yet to find a quality team. Uh, front-running type team and so in coming to IndyCar you know we just got to see all those talents unleashed and boy did he uh, uh, own the place Montoya definitely would fall more into the quote development side Uh, I believe if I remember correctly um, JPM looking for a quality F1 seat did not necessarily have a race seat ready to go in a quality place And so Chip and Frank uh, worked something out. And obviously with Zanardi moving on uh, to F1, uh, going back to F1, uh, JPM certainly found a home here in IndyCar for two years before uh, heading to F1 with Frank. So I think that would maybe be more the angle of like a placement thing. Like, look, we don't really have space for him now, but uh, what can we do to make sure that he keeps learning and developing uh, outside of F1. And boy, was that not a a very successful uh, venture for both men. Uh, The Wawa24, any news on Ed Jones plans for 2024? I have zero. Uh, It's just because I haven't asked and I don't say this next part to be mean or anything. I genuinely like Ed. Um, If you're not really in the game, Uh, I'm not really trying to chase down what you're doing. And so since I know of nothing in IndyCar uh, waiting for Ed and have known of no options for Ed, I'll admit I haven't made any time to try and find out what he might be doing next. Uh, I would assume uh, since he did some sports cars before getting the call up to come back to IndyCar with uh, the uh, Dale Coyne Racing with Vassar Sullivan team this past season, I'd be very surprised if he didn't try and return to sports cars in some capacity in Europe. Uh, Austin Sutton, back again, us with Oliver Askew moving away to Formula E and Kevin Magnuson in the WC, who do you think will likely fill the role as 2022's super sub if one is needed? Now that's a fantastic question, Austin, of which I've given zero thought. So let me see if I can solve that very quickly uh obviously it depends on the team um where where would we go here i mean i would say that certainly if there's a need within andretti autosport i'd think oliver would get the call up if he doesn't have a conflicting formula E er, formula e thing but beyond that wow that's a good one because there aren't a ton of options uh that i would say teams would leap towards uh driver who I think should absolutely be uh frontline super sub would be R.C. Enerson. I know that he and the top gun team hope to do uh, more races and 500 and maybe who knows a couple more, but that kid's got a silly amount of talent who for reasons I don't fully get is not someone that uh, bigger teams covet, but I would say him for sure. We don't know what's going to happen with Connor daily yet, Hope that he would land uh, a full time or part time thing somewhere. I would certainly say, though, that if that does not happen, knowing that he's also looking at possibly doing some NASCAR stuff, maybe even a full season in NASCAR, uh, if he's not, uh, if he is available, uh, I would have to believe Connor would be P1 on that list for sure. <sighs> Don't know what's going to happen with Max Chilton, but I know that he is a trusted pair of hands for sure. Uh, doesn't have a reputation for being a crasher, etc., etc., so I think he would be um, a candidate for sure. And I would say Tony Canon but knowing that he also has a pretty active racing calendar in Brazil uh, with uh, Brazilian stock cars and whatnot, he jumps out. I mean, Another one who... Maybe I'll just close with this because we could probably do this game all day. But Sage Karam should be a guy that is being called by many teams if they need someone to uh, to step in and, and do a quality job. That kid is phenomenally good. Let me run down the list. Stefan Wilson, Jared Hildebrand, etc. Uh Charlie Kimball. where does uh, Charlie Murphy fit in? i don't think that there's a total lack of capabilities here if we're talking a wow super sub meaning someone who can climb in and go get you a big big result i don't know if any of those names really jump out as uh being available at the moment uh let's see andrew miller says so i saw alex pelot's retweet of his nomination for autosports international driver of the year up against Lewis Hamilton, Max Verstappen, Nick DeVries. It's nice that IndyCar is still apparently thought of as a, quote, international series by an internationally focused media outlet. Uh, Andrew also says, note that Kyle Larson wasn't nominated. But to reference the meme, is it, though? Is IndyCar really an international thing? What say you? Uh, Does a gravitational pull of the Indy 500 keep IndyCar at this level? Um, Or is it the international roster of drivers that earns this, quote, uh, international driver of the year. Or is it both? My guess, Andrew, is that the growing appreciation for the quality of IndyCar, its races, its drivers, fueled by Groschand, right? Formula One, as a whole, looked in last season. Hey, our guy. just went through hell just went through fire Uh, is coming back we want to watch him we want to see how he does and he's doing well Uh, He's not with the biggest team but uh, he's giving a great account of himself I think for the first time in a long time Andrew Formula One European racing media you name it gave a powerful powerful uh, interest of what took place in IndyCar and came away impressed. I'd say that's probably it, man. Um, as long as we continue to have a romance, if we could add a Nick DeVries, holy cow, that, that kid's amazing. Like, seriously, we got to have him. Uh, I know that he's got work to do in Formula E, but we're looking more towards the future. But you chuck in a Nick DeVries? I mean, I know Stoffel is testing here. Uh, I don't know if he's going to be the right guy for air mclaren sp's third car or full-time effort but anyways we'll see but if a couple of the valued appreciated proven european drivers a few more i think come over and do well but don't necessarily run away with things i think that just adds more to uh this international appreciation of what we got going on here uh windy car mp last week you were discussing devlin d De francesco and his development the young nba player folks would say things like limit their turnovers prove the shot selection learn to play off the ball read where switches on defense will position them after an off-ball screen etc that's the nuance of the game that maybe uh players don't need in college uh, where growth can still happen in the nba what are some skill set equivalents in indycar uh, what are the specific things you've often seen young drivers need to improve on? You said the deeper the cuts and nuance, the better. Thanks, as always. You bet. Uh, not going to go too deep here, though, just because we've got a fair more fair number of questions to still get through before we are done with the show, and I don't want this one to run too long. Feedback is always the number one area uh, of development. Exceptions, of course, to the rule, but I'm just talking in a general standpoint. Um, if you think about the type of cars that young drivers drive on the road to Indy are coming up from karting, super limited number of things you can change by comparison to an Indy car. Technology improves at each step tends to be a few more things, uh, that you might be able to modify, uh, on the car to make it improve. You think about, Hey, Indy lights, it's not perfect in terms of Everything on that car is going to be found on an Indy car, but you're getting close. The more time you're able to spend there to figure that chassis out, to work at that high level of performance, highest level on the road to Indy, brought to you by Cooper Tires, um, and developing with your engineer on how to make that car the best it can be, figure out all the tricks and all the little, again, nuances that, uh, that can make you a, a race winner versus a mere podium contender, Those are things that are going to shorten your learning curve once you get to IndyCar. So if I look at a Devlin doing one year in lights and coming to IndyCar, um, I'm sure that having been part of the Andretti Autosport uh, ecosphere, he learned a lot, was taught a lot, developed in that area a ton. But there are going to be more things for sure on an IndyCar that can be tuned, developed, modified, Not only to his liking, to make the car handle more to the way that he wants. You step down at each level. Down, 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 down. Fewer areas of customizing the car and its handling to your liking. You tend to have to live with more things that you don't necessarily like. Because you just don't have as many tools to tune. I shouldn't just say tools, but items to tune on the car. Get to IndyCar, oh boy. There's tuning seemingly everywhere from uh, nose to tail. Change a little wicker here, a little geometry, suspension geometry, change uh, a shim on a third spring stack, blah, 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 blah. There's a lot of things that can be done. Then engine tuning, uh, throttle mapping, there's lots. So it's the learning there not all those things are available in Indy Lights, but there are still enough to where you go, the more you learn there, the less you're going to have to learn in IndyCar. So if you're coming in IndyCar with not a ton of that time learning, well, this is where generalism here, not specific to Devlin. Uh, this is where race engineers are having to educate their rookie drivers more during that first season, second season, possibly as well. Uh, more coaching upcoming from strategists, team owner, other drivers. You're more of a project. Um, that's the thing you're trying to avoid. So that's one area. We move out of your the basketball stuff that I mentioned and that you mentioned here and move to, to football. Uh, one, I guess we also have it in basketball too, but I especially hear it in, in NFL rookies talking about coming out of college ball where they may have been the best whatever best monster a beast in uh, in college they get to the NFL and you hear the same thing from every player i cannot believe how fast it is i cannot believe how fast they play here like in college i was the badass i was the big one who was able to mow down everybody and go a million miles an hour i was this exception to the rule you get to the NFL Everybody's that way, and I just have never seen the game played that fast. It's another thing here too for your average rookie coming in, not as much experience uh, at the top level of the road to Indy, or just not as much of a mercurial talent like a Askew, Pato, Colton, Kirkwood, etc. The sheer speed at which things happen in IndyCar uh, among all the rivals the better young drivers, they tend to figure out the speed, right? Going down a straightaway quickly, not so much of a challenge. Uh, challenges coming onto that straightaway road course, primarily what I'm talking about here, uh, on the limit. So you're maximizing your uh, straight line speed and your VMAX, and then braking at the last possible moment to carry that speed as far into the corner as you can, while also not charging too deep and far into the corner to where you blow the next apex and kill your rolling speed across the apex etc etc you find that hey uh, i was able to do a lot of things very very well like this in say an in indie lights but here at the again to the sharp end of the grid or i mean to be honest most of the grid nowadays they're all able to do the stuff at a brutally fast level oh my gosh like there're no dogs out here oh here I come across good old Fred, and he's just trotting along at the Apex, and it's going to be easy for me to get him coming out of the corner. Yeah, that that's almost not a thing. There's only two or three drivers maybe where you go, yeah, they're they're somewhat easy outs. That's another thing here where you go, you need to understand that the speed at which we play here, every corner, every lap, among the finer teams, finer drivers, of which that's pretty much the entire paddock these days, You have to adapt to that. And congratulations on putting two or three really solid laps together in practice. But we need more from you. And on your average lap, say there's 10 corners, you did an amazing job at seven. But not at three. And it's not like you get the same seven corners right on every lap and the same three wrong or leave a little bit it's rotating around and moving a little bit. So the, oh my gosh, this whole thing is fast. And the consistency at which the top teams, top drivers are able to perform on the average lap, that's a whole new area too, where skill set equivalent here, it's a bit different, right? So if we come back to the NBA, what's the thing where you go, boy, I love this player, but they showed so much in college, but it's taken a little while for them to become a truly effective NBA player. It's the, whoa, so-and-so put up 50 points. Can't believe the rookie did that. The next game is 12. (laughs) And hey, wow, they were shut down on defense and their whatever war rating was this. And the next game, people just ran by them and scored freely and laughed and pointed and taunted. Um, So those are the two main things I would say that come to mind. Uh, learning about the car, learning about all the tools, learning about all the technology, how to change and modify each thing to suit your needs, to make the car better. Uh, the engineering and technical growth is almost always that big learning thing that takes a little while. Uh, and then the adapting to the, okay, cool, man, you got half the corners. <laughs> you're doing great there and you're charging, you're being a beast, but let's, hey, how do we how do we get all of them? to be good if not great and how do we get that consistency built in um the the winning the race is the thing that happens for those who are able to achieve that at the highest level 85 lap race 10 corners uh 850 opportunities for perfection the highest achievers i'm just making up numbers here you know they're in the we're, we nailed 750 to 800 of those corners again the entry the apex the exit the braking the turning the you name it it's the younger ones where you go again. i'm just making up numbers hey you got 600 of those 850 or yeah you might have even gotten close to 700 but boy even though that's pretty close to getting them all you find the other ones are like 750 800 and that's a huge difference uh on the stopwatch so there you go um all right rattle through a few more then we're going to say goodbye uh raymond Wong says i listened to a podcast interview of tice carlson he mentioned his indie fan force entry john lacy and has taken how the engineers were too arrogant and refused any help from those who had knowledge of building indie engines is there more to the truth of it also what is your opinion uh what is your opinion favorite story of arrogance in racing Uh, where it blew up in their faces in the end wow all right this one would take me a while to uh, to run through that story um raymond so we'll wait just a little bit on that one the latter um we're talking about engineers and then also engines so uh, i'm a little bit confused because we're talking a team entry a driver entry i'm not sure which engineers raymond and engines um there was no lack of skill within engine developments. The, the Judd family, John Judd Jr. and John Judd Sr., in knowing how to build high-quality, high-everything motor racing engines. This 2012 Indy 500 entry with Shauna O'Lacy was slapped together. Um, the uh, late engineer Tim Wardrop was assigned to that. Tim certainly was not a person to have others tell him how to do his job. And I would say I it doesn't really matter um who else built engines in Indianapolis, uh in one eighty five hundreds or otherwise, uh, none of them were going to help the juds in any way because the amount of money committed by Lotus to the program was so shockingly low and there were so few engines that existed. Um this was a Indy Lights program uh, masquerading as an IndyCar program. The Judds did as they were asked, did the best with what they were given. They just were given pennies on the dollar. So uh, their their history tells us, whether it's Formula 1 or back in the car, IndyCar series era, presented with a decent budget, just decent, if not... Pretty darn solid. They know how to make very good motor racing engines. So it wasn't for a lack of knowledge uh, or capabilities by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, there was a ground-up problem from day one, and so the motors had to be run in such a detuned and protected state because they had so few of them to use. Not just the. I'm not talking this individual team across all Lotus teams that there was such a massive compromise from the beginning because there was no budget, there was nobody at any other engine building house that was going to solve the problem unless they wanted to chuck in millions of dollars so the judge could start from scratch, uh, build more motors, build better motors, and be more aggressive. So uh, that's the only thing that I know here uh, in terms of it being uh, something that someone else could come in and magically fix um let's go to our pal kurt pose how you doing kurt a uh scca corner worker and volunteer uh, mad respect to you kurt this is in the trend of scotty mclaughlin jimmy johnson and now ernie francis jr what drivers without much experience in single seaters do you think could join IndyCar? um join the ladder system possibly and have some success or who would you just love to see give it a go simple answer here forget the road to indy get ricky taylor in an IndyCar car now uh That kid is brutally good. Not an oval guy, right? No oval experience. He'd pick that up in a snap. No question about that. But um, we might have a situation here, Kurt, by the end of 2022, there might be more seats open uh, than expected. Paying seats. We need high-performing potential race winners now. And even if you got something to learn, like ovals, we will do that. But your overall potential is super high. Who are you? Where are you? There's going to likely be one of two scenarios. A void of quality names to put forth, and therefore a need to look all around the earth. Hey, you're a Formula 1 test driver. You're a recent F2 champ or similar, and you're not really racing your reserving and simulating and whatevering and hey uh, maybe we'll test you and you could be the new paid driver stepping into a a high quality seat or could there be a couple of local domestic considerations of yeah again there's not going to be a lot of truly free race winning title contending indycar drivers just sitting out there on the market uh, not many of them. There could be more available seats for drivers like that than there are known turnkey move from the IndyCar team you're at to our IndyCar team type folks to solve that solution. So I would say if I'm looking at anybody, Ricky Taylor is it. Uh, Felipe Nasr, he's doing sports cars. Gonna, Don't think he's going to be able to do that. Um some others I know, like uh, Pippo Durrani, who'd love to. I-, I hope someone would test him again because I think I recently mentioned uh, there weren't a lot of like, "Whoa, my gosh, he's!" That, it went so well, type reports from the one test he did with uh, uh, Air McLaren SP years ago. A couple others have come to mind, right? Could Harry Tinknell, who said he'd love to do it? Could Oliver Jarvis? It could you know? I could keep throwing a f- more and more sports car names at you, but I think Ricky Taylor, honestly who tested for Penske in Paginot's car at Homestead in 2016. Uh, was it 16 or 17? I forget, but it was at the time um, he was part of team Chevy family in sports cars. It was presented as um, he was helping doing some braking testing evaluation and just wanted to get some outside input. What it was in reality was a test of Ricky by the team to make sure see if that's someone that they wanted for the upcoming acura imsa dpi program i'm told i wasn't there i haven't seen the the timing sheet but i'm told he was decently faster than simon in his own car at that test uh with all the experience that he has all the endurance racing all the wheel to wheel just hardcore 2 4 10 12 24 hour racing all the championships all the everything that he's done all the crazy technical expertise that he has just saying that's the one person who's never raced an indycar Kurt has a single test under his belt that i think if we were to read uh so and so retires tomorrow at andretti ganassi penske whatever um oh my goodness we've got to find a driver i'd be calling all those team owners saying look I just know the kid, right? (laughs) Not as agent, not as anything, but if you aren't testing Ricky Taylor tomorrow, provided he wants to, you've lost your mind. I think he's the one real kind of unicorn that we haven't gotten into IndyCar yet. Who would be phenomenal. Uh, Another thing that I know uh, is some of his IndyCar driving teammates rave about him. Who've shared uh, prototypes with him. Uh, Really crazy fast prototypes with him ever raved about his talent saying, yeah, he would absolutely be a beast in IndyCar. Uh, Kyle Levine, along the lines of Andretti, saying he thought he was 48 hours away from possibly closing the f 1 buyout. What's the craziest deal you know of that fell apart at the last minute? Why don't I give you this? And I don't know if it's the exact thing you're asking for, but I know of uh, one thing that recently fell through uh, with a driver and a team where... they learned about it by reading about the other person who got the deal. Um, Yeah, because if we're just talking correct behavior, uh, if a team's talking to you and they're very seemingly serious about doing something and then are also negotiating with someone else and are very serious with them. Not a, not a bad thing. That happens all the time. But failing to cover things off um, with the one that didn't get the deal and them learning that, indeed, uh, they've been wasting their time for the past little while because you decided on the other person a while ago and uh, couldn't even tell the person that didn't get the deal, like, Obviously, not mentioning names and teams right now because there's no real need for it. But those are all, again, when folks say, ah, oh, there's not enough drama in IndyCar for a drive to survive, I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I hear about this stuff, I don't want to say every day, Kyle, but like a couple times a week where you go, oh, that wasn't, oh, that was kind of dickish. So, yeah, I mean, I. Half hour before I started recording, was having a text exchange with someone in the paddock who was telling me about what happened to them in this exact regard. Uh let's see. <clears throat> Where are we going here to close? Um Jamie Rowe, I was wondering if there's any news or rumors percolating about Vassar Sullivan and their 2022 plans. Staying with Dale Cohen Racing. Uh is that it? New partnership out of IndyCar? They seem like a perfect fit for Toyota if Toyota comes into the series. Also, because Jamie is a very kind and thoughtful man. It's best you, your wife, and the cats. Um, not yet. Um, I'm asking. And as soon as I have enough confirmation, uh, I will absolutely be writing about it, Jamie. Uh, the thing you mentioned about Vassar Sullivan, which is Lexis's partner team in IMSA uh obviously being a perfect fit for Toyota which owns Lexus I mean that's the that's the obvious route I would say if Toyota were to come in for Vassar Sullivan to become a full-time IndyCar team what I think and again this is like hypothetical upon hypothetical so please don't read anything into this as being like I'm I'm revealing top secret stuff I actually know I don't. But would a Vassar Sullivan be a Toyota anchor team? I can't see how Toyota would do that. If they were to uh, do all of this in IndyCar, I would think Vassar Sullivan would be the logical uh, expansion team for them, uh, the new one in IndyCar. But I would say they would certainly be looking to land one or two teams, three teams. I don't know what the number would be. But they would certainly be looking to land one or two bigger teams uh certainly a team they felt could fight for the championship uh, at least one that if not kind of big three big four status would be not too far off of that and then a, a good kind of growth and expansion program with someone like vassar sullivan uh maybe one other team as well um Mentioned this in uh, this week's mailbag, uh, Jamie, that, yeah, that's going to be the part that's interesting. I mean, we Look, we know Honda is incredibly fond of Andretti Autosport and Chip Ganassi Racing. We know that both of those teams have switched allegiances. Uh, Ganassi started out in 2012 as a Honda team, switched to Chevy, uh, came back. Inverse happened with Michael Andretti. Started out as a Chevy team, um then move to honda there have certainly been i don't know threats i would say threats but like hey our contract's coming up and boy chevy sure seems interested sweeten the pot a little bit back with honda you name it would those be two teams honda certainly fought to keep i would say without a doubt uh will chip and or michael always do what is in their best interest To grow the team, secure the team, become more competitive? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Chip, obviously, being a Honda, I'm sorry, a Toyota team in the past, uh, that's certainly uh, something we shouldn't ignore. But would I look to a Team Penske to move? Of course not. Roger, co owner, co founder of Ilmore Engineering, the builder of uh, the uh, Team Chevy IndyCar engines that ain't happening even though Rogers what the world's biggest Toyota dealer or something like that um, but yeah that ain't happening and i know that they used to be a Toyota powered team but um, nonetheless they're they're all in with uh, Chevrolet so where else do you look you know the aero mclaren sps the ray hall and lanigans i know that bobby ray hall uh, brought honda into indycar was there watching it uh, the the unfortunate early days but also when things got good i know that they own a lot of honda dealerships i believe they also own toyota dealerships could rll be a team to convert behind my list of of considerations right uh barring graham and jack and christian charging forward and knocking off some of those big three teams and fighting for a title next year I think they're going to be in that uncomfortable undesired uh, third on the depth chart for Honda uh situation. Nobody wants to be third. Um Air McLaren SP, I would say they're what? Definitely fighting with uh Penske for P1 on Chevy's depth chart, but you know, is Air McLaren SP ever going to be number 1 in Chevy's heart compared to the guy that uh makes and made uh these engines possible it's a bit of a stretch right so let's say rll coin uh air mclaren sp those are the ones that i'm looking at for pushing the hardest uh if a third manufacturer whether it's toyota or whomever comes along to be near and dear to their hearts uh let's see gonna do two more and say farewell Uh, Jeffrey May says, Howdy, Marshall. What is your favorite Indy 500? Uh, Does the answer change based on what part you played, whether it's a spectator, a crew, a reporter, etc.? Thanks, as always. I've never been a spectator uh, at the Indy 500. Uh, No, I have. I apologize. 2005, I think. Yeah. Uh, Was there running an Indy Lights team or Infinity Pro Series team at the time? So, yeah. Uh, Danny Boy's win in 2005. Yeah, thanks for asking because now i remember um but yeah other than that never been there as a spectator it's always been uh either working with a team or as a reporter boy i mean i can think of plenty just watching at home on tv that i loved but if we're talking hashtag me personally real personal attachment I and mean, that first one in 97 of course was very very special with thomas nap motorsports slash genoa racing um dreamt of being there since i was a child and so the realization of that dream was amazing 98 though is probably the one uh with all the issues that we had that year our big uh, scumbag sponsor pulling out uh, fake spot well he was a real sponsor when the money was small but a fake one when the money was real money was needed pulling out like genuinely the day we were loading in for the month of may in 98 um going through all that we went through there of being running on fumes and having to find money and uh, qualifying second and race didn't last long, uh, broke a gear and had some other issues. But, um, that one was just filled. It was the, the full experience, Jeff, the full experience of highs and lows. And, you know, uh, I don't, I'm trying to think what was, I think my best finish, As part of an IndyCar team was, I don't know, man, like 16th or something. Like, you know, nothing to be proud of or memorable or otherwise. But that 98-year, qualifying on the front row between both Foyt cars, uh, this little team, wacky Indy Lights team. Like, truly, it was... (laughs) I think I recently scanned, or I will scan a photo that I took of uh, us, uh, I think, Charlotte 97... No, 98 IRL race, whatever year it was. Um, I had some little Instamatic camera and we just landed in Charlotte or whatever. And our crew was standing out on the island and I just lagged behind to just to take a photo of them because looking at it was so telling, Jeff. And so this is the same crew basically for a 97 98 and of course we had some extra folks come in you know to help with pit stops and, and over the wall crew but the the real call it full-time crew of like four of us <laughs> right uh the photo was um gary pennison jr and senior john ennick our crew chief john's wife at the time shannon and thomas knapp <laughs> that was us Right, and the Pennisons weren't full time, um, regardless. Uh, and then me, obviously. But you know, I was the person taking the photo, so I'm not in the photo. But I just look at that Jeff, and I think about how how did we achieve that uh, with all the problems? The having to skip practice because we didn't have the money to run. We had one motor, and it wasn't great. And we needed this, and we needed we like we didn't have anything. Um, We're almost going to shut things down. And how do we go from that level of despair to qualifying second? And then I look at the crew size and there's so few of us. Just a magical year. So there you go. Last question, Jeff Egger. You say, nice job. Monday with Michael Andretti in that interview on Racer. Did not see the cats, so you must have locked them out. No, no, no. Rosie walked across the camera. um, Tuesday. Uh, with Zach Brown. And then while he was on camera, I was off camera, but he could obviously see me. uh, Our cat Rocky jumped up and walked right across. So we had both cats uh, interrupt McLaren Racing Formula One CEO, Zach Brown. Says, I enjoy the podcast and the writing. And speaking of of interviews, I'm not sure everyone is nice or easy to interview for either a story or podcast or media broadcast. Who has given you a hard time, been awkward or even inappropriate? Good stories are always appreciated. Uh, And if you can share the names, even better who are the easiest interview and what is the biggest surprise you're able to get from someone you were not expecting, uh, all the best to give, uh, to you and your wife. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for a fun one to close a show brought to us by Cooper tires, the justice brothers and Toronto and assembled by Jim Kaiser. Uh, let's see. Let me look at the, uh, Let me look at last year's IndyCar grid because it always helps jog the memory. There are some drivers who, for whatever reason, just don't have much to say, don't want to say much, uh, or just don't enjoy being interviewed. So here's an example. Chip Ganassi is almost always a terrible interview. It's a weird thing though, because turn off the camera or the audio recorder or whatever it is, Jeff, and I don't know if there are others that I enjoy more than Chip Ganassi in conversation with. I mean, there there are plenty that I enjoy. I'm just saying, like, just between the two of us, and I don't necessarily mean it has to be private or off the record, but just two racers talking, talk with him all day. Guy tells amazing stories, so interesting, like fascinating guy. There's something with Chip that that red light, the proverbial red light goes on and a switch gets flipped and it is single sentence responses. And getting more than a 20 to 30 second response from him is like pulling teeth quite often. Not always, but quite often. Uh, there are some folks where you you ring up, you interview, or you even see them in person, and you just you know hit record and sit back, and they give you miles of content. It may be too much. How am I going to parse through all this and find all, you know, it's going to take me forever to look through all this and find the, all the great uh, quotes and responses. Chip, is usually the other way where you're like pulling teeth to get enough just to do a story. One answer, one word, two word, three word, whatever. Uh, so again, um, fascinating guy, just not someone who loves uh, formal recordings. Uh, flip side to that. And I realize he's no longer an IndyCar driver, but I had to implement the Alex Tagliani text rule. And that was, And he was an active IndyCar driver. If I needed an answer to a question, uh, not a feature about Alex, but like, Hey, I'm doing a story. You could use your input on this thing. And, you know, just short, whatever. um, I would text him because I could not possibly run the risk of calling him because I'm exaggerating a little bit, but there were genuinely times where you're like, brother, We've been on the phone for 90 minutes. I needed 300 words from you, right? I needed three minutes of an answer from you. And I love you. And we've gone everywhere. We've solved every problem. Every issue has been raised. It's set, like, so I had to text because I needed to keep that locked down a little bit. Um, let's see. The most, if only there were not rules and laws that made it illegal to kill people interview that comes to mind over and over again is former F1 driver. um, Very successful now sports car driver, uh, but guy who is in between the uh, kind of F1 top-tier sports car transition doing GT stuff was Kamui Kobayashi. Um, I did not know him when I met him for the first time, I think 2013, 2014 FI World Endurance Championship and whatever ALMS or IMSA weekend it was at Circuit of the Americas. But he had moved to the AF Course Ferrari Works-ish GT team. And... You know, F1 profile, right? Certainly, super talented guy. I never uh, knew him in any way, but was very fascinated to try and do so. Talk about the move to uh, to sports cars and whatever. So, my friend Fiona Miller, who was then the head of uh, FIWC Communications, uh, she said, "Yeah, great. I'll 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 help you with uh, that desire and request to go interview him." And so she walked over to their garage. Uh, she found Kamui, said, "Hi, Kamui. This is Marshall Pruitt. He's you know um, veteran American uh, motor racing reporter. Uh, I'd love to ask you a few questions. Would it be Would it be possible?" He was sitting down, I think, I don't know if he was drinking something or had his helmet nearby, whatever it was, but was sitting down, uh, kind of in the corner a little bit not in a busy area no one else was distracting him or or pulling his attention away here jeff um so it was a little bit of an isolated area where he and i had the potential to have a nice uh, personal setting to get to know one another a little bit five minutes whatever ask some questions and go about our day um he turned to the right looked up kind of sort of grunted a yes uh, so I said, okay, great. Thanks. Thanks, Fiona. And she had other things to do. Went back to, to do, uh, her, her work and walked over. Um, I don't recall if there was a place for me to sit down. I don't think maybe there, whatever it was. Um, there wasn't a chance to be truly eye level with him since he was sitting down. Uh, I guess I could have squatted, but that would have been weird. Um, I can tell you this, if you don't want to be interviewed, Say you don't want to be interviewed. Totally fine with it. Wasting my time by giving non-answers, two or three word answers, or being generally hostile to any of the questions that I asked. And trust me, none of them were, you know, probing. It was just, hey, man, you're here. How's it working? What do you like? What do you want to do? Where do you want to go? Like, hey, man, new career opportunity. Let's talk about some of those themes among that, uh, that change for you. And... And I don't know, maybe he just got bad news from someone. Maybe he didn't like the cut of my jib. He looked up and just didn't like what he saw. I don't know. But he was a total and complete dick from the moment he looked up and said yes to the three minutes or so that it lasted because I got so much nothing out of him and kept getting more and more angry with each kind of dickish Uh, non-answer or somewhat hostile response Um, it's one of those things where he couldn't be bothered to really look at me while he was talking looked away seemed like he wanted to do everything but be in my presence and yet instead of just saying that um, wanted to be as disrespectful as he could and all I wanted to do was punch him in the face until he fell asleep because I don't care what you do for a living or what I do for a living. This goes well beyond that. Uh, This is one person being highly disrespectful for no reason that I can think of um, to another uh, in a setting where you go, hi, you do this every day, driving and talking to people and whatever you have forever. Um, Don't know what the malfunction was here. Also, I'll just mention to close, and maybe this is weird or dumb, but like if we're in like America, especially if we're in like Texas, like dude, you're kind of, you know, you're our guest. Um, If I'm in your country, man, I sure as heck better be doing all I can to be as respectful to those that I'm there with. It just didn't sit right with me that the dude wanted to sit here uh, at Circuit of the Americas and act like. Uh, this guy was way too good, way too cool uh, to even be spoken to uh, by me. And I don't know if it was because I'm an American. I don't know what it was, but it, it in a short amount, of, in like three minutes, I'm like, F that guy. Like truly, if I get the chance uh, and no one else is around, that guy's going to sleep. Fast forward to like 2019, was it? What, 2020? Uh, no, 2019, I think. When Fernando Alonso and Kobayashi were driving for Wayne Taylor at uh, Daytona for the first time, I think it was the first time, and had a quick interview with Fernando, and Kamui was there and saw him. And I know that he didn't recognize me, didn't care. You know, we're talking six years ago, three minutes of his life. All I can tell you is that my approach to him to ask questions, and he didn't say a ton, oh, I was not waiting for his good graces to come through. So that's the one that continues to stand out to me of the, hey, because sometimes I get asked to advise young drivers or what advice would you give for those who are learning, uh, coming up in the sport, new drivers, how do you interact with the media and interviews and whatever, whatever. And One of the notes is this, if you are not in a place where you want to be interviewed for whatever reason don't do the interview because if you're not in the right headspace, if you're just found out your dog died, whatever, just say no. Cause the person on the other end, uh, whose job it is to try and read you and give folks a accurate perception of who you are, what makes you, who you are, how you do what you do, blah, blah, blah. The person reporting, uh, if you're unable to give them anything or if you are not in the right place to to speak and give a public accounting of yourself please don't so there you go all right thanks to everybody for all the questions you sent in look forward to our recording with eril mclaren sp president taylor kyle who's our guest this week thanks once again to all of you for the great questions and look forward to speaking hopefully much sooner next week